As I'm pleased to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Joe Matthews. Joe Matthews is a fourth generation Californian. He's a, a senior fellow at the New America Foundation. He writes about his home state and its politics, media, labor, and real estate. He is the author of The People's Machine, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Rise of Blockbuster Democracy. Previously, he was a reporter at the Los Angeles Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Baltimore Sun. At the Sun, his coverage of a down-and-on-its-luck neighborhood of former slaughterhouses earned him the incomparable title, Bard of Pigtown. <laughs> his stories have appeared in the New Republic, the Washington Post, Politico, and Condé Nast portfolio, and he one of LA's most prolific political journalists. Please welcome Mr. Joe Matthews. Well, um, thank you very much, Gregory. Uh, thanks to Ran, Jim, everyone who's had us here, and, and to all the staff who's put this together. And, and thank you, Governor Wilson, for being a part of this. I, I could do a very, very long introduction of the governor, um, but I'm going to keep it short in part because I think we're going to cover so much of uh, what he accomplished during the course of the questions. But just briefly, Pete Wilson was the 36th governor of California. I uh, served from 1991 to 1999. He Previous to that, he spent eight years in the United States Senate. Previous to that, 11 years from 1971 to 1983 as mayor of San Diego, and five years before that as a California state assemblyman. He is of counsel to Bingham McCutcheon, a LLP, and is a principal in the Bingham Consulting Group. And he's on a, more boards and involved in more things uh, than, I, than I can uh, cover. First, a quick and, and personal note about why we're here. This is entirely my fault and my idea, and, and maybe it is a, a function of my youth and inexperience. I, I didn't know a lot about uh, Pete Wilson's governorship. I, I grew up in Southern California, but I actually largely missed the governorship. I was a high school senior on the day he took office in January of 1991. I went to school in the East, spent most of his governorship in college, and then in the early days of a journalistic career in, in the East Coast. And I must confess that until I started covering California politics, I had a, a um, I think, the sort of newspaper context paragraph uh, understanding of, of Governor Wilson's governorship. Um, and some of those context paragraphs weren't always necessarily kind, or I've come to learn accurate. Then I had the experience of reporting on California politics on this current governor's administration and, and working on a book about him. And I quickly realized there was a huge difference between um, those, that newspaper paragraph context and what uh, people who had watched him govern up close, both fought against him and fought with him, had to say about him. Um, this was, uh, it was, it was particularly remarkable to hear folks who were on the other side who fought him on various issues. And really, the view came from across the spectrum that people who'd seen his governorship up close believed he left the state in a much better position than he found it. A, a, a senior official of the California Teachers Association, who fought bitterly at, at times with the Wilson administration, said to me, and this is a quote, I never thought I would hear myself saying this, this is just a couple years ago, but I miss Pete Wilson. <laughs> I thought he was a villain, but he was an honest villain. <laughs> Deals stuck. Important issues were resolved, and he left the state with a balanced budget. I didn't realize how hard that was to do. <laughs> and just last week, I visited with a liberal journalist in Sacramento, longtime member of the press corps, someone I'm quite confident never voted for Governor Wilson. And when I asked him what I should ask here tonight, this journalist said, ask him how he did it. He was by far the most effective governor we've had up here in the last 30 years. 
Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about the past today with that introduction, but I also want to talk about the past with a real focus on how you govern California in the present. Um, we obviously don't have time to cover everything. I'm certainly, I will admit, in very important issue, omit very important issues in this um, short time, but I'm hoping that the audience will fill some of those gaps for us in the Q&A. I want to start by sort of framing this, and, and uh, a story that's often told and reported is that you're in the United States Senate, you've been elected to a second term, and you tell the political consultant, Stu Spencer, that um, you're thinking about running for governor, and he says essentially, what are you nuts? Uh, the state of California is ungovernable. Now, is that a true story? Yes. <laughs> now, was Stu Spencer right then? And since now we hear so much commentary that the state is ungovernable, is that statement true now? Actually, he went further than that. He said, states have become ungovernable. Hmm. And no, he was not right then and he's not right now. Difficult? Yes. Challenging, very. Not ungovernable. Hmm. What, what, why do you say that? I mean, well, timing is everything. Mine was rotten. I, uh, <laughs> I came up to have lunch with my friend George Duke Majin about two weeks after the election. Towards the end of the lunch, mostly small talk, he said, clearing his throat, he said, um, a little troubled about the fact that we seem to be experiencing a revenue decline. <laughs> I said, a revenue decline. Like what? He said, well, down a little more, uh, down a little bit in July, a little more in August, a little more in September. And I said, how much for the quarter? He said, about 140 million. And I said, well, that's troubling. On the other hand, given the size of the budget, that's not yet cause for panic, and we were sitting there nodding sagely. The door opened, in walked someone from the Department of Finance, and he said, Governor, I have the October revenue numbers. He said, yes. He said, we're down $260 million. And I said, you mean for October or for the four months cumulatively? He said, oh, no, that's just October. For the four months, <laughs> for the four months we're down $400 million. About two weeks later, I walked, walked in to visit um, my team, my finance team, my new director of finance, newly appointed, he says newly conned, Tom <laughs> Hayes. And it was a bright, sunny fall morning. I was feeling chipper and came in whistling and, until I saw him. <laughs> And his face had all the warmth and cheer of an open grave. And he said to his staff, he said, if you don't mind, I need a few moments alone with the governor, if you wouldn't mind stepping out into the corridor. They did, and I said, what's up, Tom? He said, do you remember that when you asked me to take this job, you said that if ever there were a problem, I should not conceal it from you. I said, of course I remember. He said, do you remember that you said that if there were ever bad news, we should break it to the public? I said, what's the bad news? He said, I think you'd better sit down. <laughs> the bad news is that we're going to have to close a revenue gap of at least $5 billion. And I will not 
tell you what I said to him next. <laughs> As it turned out, it took us about two weeks to craft the budget that I was supposed to submit to the legislature, I think four days after my swearing in. And by the time we'd finished, we had closed a revenue gap that we were convinced was not five, but at least seven billion. And we did it all with spending cuts. And when I submitted it, there was hooting, hollering, laughter, declarations that it was dead on arrival. By, by April, we knew that the gap was at least 10 billion. And we're in April of 1991 here. April of 1991. Year. And by the time I signed my first budget in early July, a few days past the constitutional deadline, it was closing a gap of $14.3 billion on a general fund budget that was between $42 and $43 billion. So it was, in simplest terms, one-third of the entire general fund. And that's bigger proportionally than what we face now. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and it was... Um, it was a very interesting learning experience, I think, for everyone. Uh, Willie and David, Willie Brown, then Speaker of the Assembly, and David Roberti, the pro tem of the Senate, came to me late in the spring, and they said, okay, we understand that you were not kidding. We're prepared to accept your spending cuts, even though we have sworn on our mother's grave that we would never do this. And they said, but that's as far as we can go. We're going to meet you halfway. Half cuts, and then, Governor, half tax increases of your choice. I said, I don't like any of it. And actually, he will deny this, I know. <laughs> but Willie turned to me and he said, um, or he said, you know, Run a tab. <laughs> I said, run a tab? <laughs> Willie, if you haven't read the Constitution lately, there is a sentence in there that says the governor, governor shall submit a budget to the legislature in which revenues and expenditures are in balance. He said, don't worry about that. <laughs> he said, that just means you have to submit one to us. We don't have to pass one. You don't have to sign it. I will assume that he said that with tongue-in-cheek, however. <laughs> anyway, uh, what happened was that I made the discovery that when we had cut $7 billion, with the only thing that we had not really touched was education. Education under Proposition 98 was funded by a formula, and the formula was activated by three levels of revenue. When we had lost one-third of the entire general fund, we were at the bottom level. Right. But it was still a great deal of money, and historically, the state of California has always spent the lion's share on education, and quite properly. I, mean, I think that has never really been disputed. And in the early 90s, 
if you added the costs of higher education to K through 14, it was about 54% of the budget. Anyway, uh, when I brought the bad news to the Assembly Republican Caucus that Willie and David had said, we will meet you halfway, half taxes, half spending cuts. <laughs> they said, oh, Governor, please don't, don't agree to the tax increases. I said, that's fine. I have spent eight years in the, state, in the United States Senate where I was uh, designated, along with others, a watchdog of the Treasury. And I said, if that's a, the way you feel, then, and I paused, and the then Republican leader of the Assembly, Ross Johnson, Ross Johnson, yeah. nice guy, said, oh, Governor, he said, I do hope you're not going to ask us to support you on a motion to suspend Proposition 98. I said, of course I am, <laughs> for the same reason that Willie Sutton robbed banks. That's <laughs> where the money is. And the time has come, if we're not going to have tax increases, that we have to cut further. So yes, I'm going to ask, and I'm going to ask right now. Let me see by a show of hands how many of you born-again tax fighters are willing to do that. And in that caucus of 33, one hand went up. Hmm. And Who's I was then, that? Uh, it was the uh, tall, rather distinguished-looking, nice-looking man from Orange County. Um, he has Perfect. a French name. <laughs> uh, wow. Before our time. We'll, we'll come back to it in any event. So uh, one hand went up. Call me at 3 o'clock. I'll okay. have it. <laughs> Anyway, um, he and I seemed alone, and at this point, I must admit, I lost my temper and said something to the a caucus that some folks would probably say was vulgar, and I'm not <laughs> going to repeat it now. And it included the word irrelevant? Yes. Yes, okay. And anyway... That is how we got through the first year, because finally eight of them found the uh, stomach to vote for the increases, which were temporary and popped off by operation of law. Well, let me, let me stop you there, because okay. I want to ask about that specifically, because yeah. that seems to be such the problem in this era that we're yeah. currently in. Getting those few votes um, to get to two-thirds, to get the budget through and you had Ross Johnson the assembly minority leader yeah. opposing you and you were able to pick off I uh, actually the the accounts of the time say nine votes uh, uh, from his from his side of the aisle to do that now how how did you actually do that what is the secret that to that I picked the eight smallest guys got them in a dark room <laughs> and one at a time broke their arm no <laughs> What happened was that I said, look, this is not pleasant for you, and it is certainly not pleasant for me. On the other hand, there is one thing worse than increasing taxes, and we're not going to do that. We're not going to engage in deficit spending. It is expressly unconstitutional, 
And if it weren't, we wouldn't anyway because it is a very pernicious, it isn't even a slippery slope. It just leads to utter irresponsibility. And so next year, when predictably, and this was easily predicted, I said, you know, I said to Willie and to David, I said, you, you do understand that next year we're going to have even smaller revenues. And they said, why? What are you talking about? And I said, by increasing taxes, we are not encouraging economic growth. And by the way, that's something that we're going to have to do that has not been going on. And this state has a terrible business climate. I've got a drawer full of letters from people saying, I'm a native Californian. I started my family in Glendale. I started my small business there. I am writing you from Waco or Yuma or Eugene, Oregon, because I could no longer make a go of it in California. The taxes were too high. The costs of doing business were too high. The, re the regulation was excessive and it was a hidden tax. The workers' comp system was killing me. Um, roofers were paying 50 cents premium for every dollar of payroll. And in fact, I had a big argument with Willie and David the first year. I said, we're going to have to fix workers' comp. And they said, Governor, that's not a budget issue. And I said, everything is a budget issue. And finally, we did fix it, but it was about two years later. And what really happened... Well, first, I sh I'm getting a little ahead of the story. Well, let me let me let me jump in yeah. here with a, a question about the economy in this first year. You come mm -hmm. in and right. um, and it's it's sort of stunning to go back and read all these newspaper stories from 1991, which talk about the worst economy since the Great Depression. If you haven't heard yeah. that uh, recently, I not only uh, and, and heard it, I said it. <laughs> um, big recession. Um, this this you know this change in 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 the defense industry. Uh, real estate, you know, collapse of the real estate market, all of these things happening. And, and I, I wanted to ask you essentially the question of what can a governor actually do about the state economy? One of the observations I, I got from economists talking about what I should ask you was that the view that your two successors tended to ex describe the California economy as very much... Um, you know, deeply tied and, and hard to control. Uh, you know, part of the global economy, part of the national economy. I mean, Gray Davis in particular, you know, was talked about his term was good when the, when the economy is good, his term turned bad when the economy was bad. And the view is that you actually looked, you know, seemed to feel that the state economy, you know, was very much a, almost a separate entity that, that was susceptible to, to governance. Uh, you know, what, what was your sort of thinking there and what could you actually do about the state economy? Well, you could do quite a lot. What you could do, what we finally did do, was to change the business environment. And you have to bear in mind that then, and I don't know what it is today, but there were something like 800,000 small businesses in California. They were collectively the major employer in this state. And those letters that I was getting from people who had started small businesses and then moved out of state they spoke volumes, and 
the point was pretty obvious. I, I said, I remember talking to about five Democratic state senators, and I said, we've got to fix the business environment. And one of them said to me, he said, oh, what are you talking about? He said, come on, Governor. He said, that's bunk, you know that. And I said, I beg your pardon? He said, we're irresistible to business. And I said, and how did you come to that? He said, well, because of our vast audiences, or excuse me, our vast markets. And I said, did it ever occur to you that manufacturers who find it too expensive to operate in this state because they're having to compete with people from other states who have lesser costs can decide to move out of California to Nevada or Arizona and make all kinds of sales, they can just sell the hell out of these vast markets and not be here, which was what was happening. And I said, look, this is what's wrong. Well, they didn't want to hear it. I asked Peter Uberoth the first year to chair a commission on California's competitiveness. And I said, Peter, you know what's wrong, and I know what's wrong, but we have to go through this. I have appointed a council that I want you to chair. There are 18 people on it. You're the 19th. And they are very broadly representative of the business community, especially the small business community. And it was representative. Uh, labor was represented. In any case, I said, what you have to do is have hearings. You have to then come up with specific recommendations, both for legislation and for regulatory reform, because we have got to turn this state around. And it will not be easy, but we can do it. Well, one of the recommendations they came up with was to create a new agency. Initially, I wasn't sure I wanted to add a new agency to state government. But it was a trade and commerce agency. And the first secretary of it um, was Julie Wright. And she was, if I do say so, an inspired pick because she had not only the intelligence and the experience, but the high energy. Because part of what was wrong with with the business environment were these wounds inflicted not by the private sector upon themselves, but by state and local governments. And we identified those, he identified them in this, in the report of the Council on Competitiveness. Well, the Democratic leadership blew it off. And what finally changed their minds was that I took them with me on trips, marketing trips through the country. I took Willie, I took David, I took a number of the Democratic legislative leaders and Republican, and we went to Minneapolis, we went to Chicago, we went to Dallas, we went to New York, we went all over the country. And I said, we are going to pitch California as a place in which to do business. And I'll open it. And then you, Willie, speak your piece. And then you, Ken, David, 
When we got to Chicago, a man stood up in the question and answer period, and he said, I've got a question for you. He said, but let me start by thanking you for coming here. Thank you for breakfast. He said, I think I owe you some candor. And he said, I've been fortunate enough to gain market share for what I manufacture. I could really use another plant. And he said, my question to you is this. Why in the name of God would I do it in California where my first plant has been an absolute nightmare? And he then proceeded to recite a litany of very specific and totally justified, really egregious flaws in the economy from his standpoint. For example, just do you recall? Yeah. He said he was talking about the fact that when he had tried to open his plant, it had been it had he'd been delayed six months because of local requirements, local permitting requirements. He said, I missed the cycle by a full year. He said, that cost me quite a bit of money. And he said, the other thing is that the workers' compensation costs were unbelievable. And he said, all kinds of regulations imposed costs on me and they distracted me from doing the business. Uh, he said, I put somebody else in charge and came back here, but he said, I gotta tell you, he said, it's just much more expensive to operate in California and your taxes are too high. <laughs> so all of those things. Now what finally happened was that on the way back to the airport, in the taxi, Tom, I was sharing a, tax, a taxi with Tom Hannigan, who was the Democratic floor leader in the assembly. And he was quiet. And after being quiet for a couple of minutes, he looked over at me and he said, okay, you've made a convert. He said, when you said these things, I was pretty skeptical. But he said, I've heard it now from the people whom we really have to get to change the image We've got to change the image of California. We are perceived as either indifferent or hostile to job creation. I said, well, that's right. We are. And in fact, we have been. It's not just a question of image. It's deserved image. And I said, if you ever want to get, and by the way, this was the third year, and we've three years running. Year over year, the general fund was smaller than it had been the year before. And so I said, Tom, we've got to change the image, but the only way you change the image is to change substantively the facts of this environment. Because these are not fools. These are people who compare their cost of doing business. And by the way, there's a reason that virtually every other state had a bureau in California unabashedly seeking to steal our jobs. So, so, so you by the way, they're back. They, they <laughs> went away by the end of the yeah. first term. So you did a bunch of things. You, you workers' comp legislation that, that reduced premiums for quite some time and, and came we cut, back as a... We cut taxes for small business. We also gave 
the largest R&D tax credit of any state in the country. So, you know, someone might look, though, at the, you know, the, the job numbers, particularly loss of manufacturing jobs in the 1990s in California, and say, well, did it really work? Yes, it did work. Because in the last couple of years of my second term, we were producing more jobs, and this was before the dot-com bubble. We were producing more jobs in New York, Pennsylvania, and Illinois combined. Well, let me, um, as, as time is short, I want to go to the second year in the budget. You, you raised taxes in the first year. And by the way, the best evidence of that yeah. is that in my last year in office, and again, this was well before the dot-com bubble, we had... Uh, Given the largest tax cut in the state's history, it was a cut in the car tax. After doing that, we left my successor a surplus of about $12 billion. That came because of increased revenues. Was there, how did, what did, what did you do on the spending side? There's been all kinds of conversations and we've, you know, had to vote yeah. on spending limits and rainy day funds and that sort of thing. Well, at one time there was what was termed the GAN spending limit and roughly speaking, it said that after you choose a base year, you allow a permissible increase in spending as a function of two factors increase in population and increase in inflation. And that's good enough, actually. Um, in San Diego, we had done something a, a little bit more stringent. We didn't compensate fully for inflation. And we really looked, as I think the state should look, at not population growth, but caseload growth. And obviously that's a function of eligibility. Anyway, that is what we did and we did cut spending. We had to. Uh, we cut it by seven billion in that first year. We had to cut it again the second year because predictably the revenues were down from the year before. And the same thing in the third year. The third year Willie Brown got up when the budget came to the floor and he put up his mic and he said, if you're wondering why I'm carrying Pete Wilson's water, you may not like the man, but he's no fool. This is as good as it's gonna get. So vote for it. And he put his mic down, walked off the floor after he had voted, all the lights went up. <laughs> Let me ask you about the second year because it has echoes of what we're facing now. In, in your second year, um, you know, the, the, you didn't uh, <laughs> raise taxes. You and you That's and right. you and you took a huge hit in your approval rating. Um, I'm told there was a meeting where Joe Shoemate warned you this was going to happen, and you um, accounts of it from former aides say you you jumped down his throat about it and were willing to take this hit um, politically and and put the state in a position where. The state issued IOUs. This, if we issue IOUs later this week, it won't be the first time. We did it in 1992. Um, what was your, you know, was what was your uh, thinking there, and what is the lesson? I mean, what, what should we know about IOUs and that experience that might be relevant now? Well, that was the endless summer of 92. We went 64 days past the constitutional deadline, which I thought was going to be a record until 
recent times, <laughs> uh, and a dubious record at that. But what happened was that the Democratic majorities in both houses decided, well, we'll just raise taxes again. And I said, no, we're not going to raise taxes again. That was it. And as I told you, when you raise taxes, you discourage economic growth, particularly for small businesses, and we're not going to do it again. Well, it was an election year. It was 1992, and the, the reasoning, I think, was very astute. Willie was a very astute, very shrewd political strategist and tactician. And we had done a couple of things that probably annoyed him. One was term limits passed. And in an unkind moment, I once said, Willie, you're the reason for term limits. <laughs> Which he knew, so that it annoyed him even more. And in fact, after the term limits had operated so that he had to leave the legislature and was then the flamboyant mayor of San Francisco. I said to him once, I said, Willie, have you ever considered how much you owe me? He said, what the <laughs> hell do I owe you? I said, listen, if it weren't for term limits and reapportionment, you wouldn't have this cushy job. <laughs> well, You're more amused than he was, but... <laughs> um, Anyway, the reason for the endless summer of 92 was that he had made a very shrewd calculation. He said to a Democratic gathering the night before the 92 election, he said, you've got to be prepared for us to lose at least five seats in the assembly. Wilson and the Republicans have done such a number on us on reapportionment that that's going to happen. He knew it wasn't going to happen. And he knew it wasn't going to happen because it was also a presidential election year. It was the year in which Ross Perot made a lasting contribution to American history. Bill Clinton defeated George Bush. And George Bush was persuaded, I think, uh, it was a terrible mistake, but then I can't be quite objective about it. But they had persuaded him they should write off California. And he did. He did not show up for work here for the last four months of the election. And instead of losing five seats in the assembly, they picked up one. Now, Willie was only slightly premature because two years later, in 94, when I was running for re-election, we picked up eight. And it was because we had brought about, I think, the first fair and honest reapportionment in the state's history because it wasn't done by the legislature. It was done by judge. It was done by, well, I'll tell you what happened. First of all, I had to veto three of Willie's gerrymanders, which I was happy to do. But the other thing was we had tried twice before through the Supreme Court to get a fair and honest redistricting. Anything that was not a gerrymander, was going to be an improvement, mm -hmm. I think, not only for the Republicans, but also for the state. You get a different kind of legislature. 
And what happened was that I asked three Democrats and three Republicans, four of them retired appellate court justices, one a retired Supreme Court justice, two women. We had uh, Jack Arguez, who was the retired Supreme Court justice, uh, a Republican, Elwood Louie, um, retired DCA judge, um, Republican. The chairman was a Democrat, Dutch Higgs, from San Diego County. He was the first president of the state bar from San Diego County. He was Pat Brown's lifelong friend. Pat appointed him to the Board of Regents, where he served two uh, distinguished terms. He was a terrific guy. He looked and acted like Abe Lincoln. <laughs> he was the chairman. And uh, the only non-lawyer or non-judge on that six-person commission was Condi Rice, who was then the provost of Stanford. And I said to them, I said to each one, I said, look, you have to abide by the Federal Voting Rights Act. You have to abide as best you can by the state constitutional provision against splitting communities. Because there had been a lot of that in every one of the preceding gerrymanders. And I said, but frankly, the most important thing, as far as I'm concerned, is draw these districts so that they are not lizards and snakes and belts and so that they are fair what, what what we're looking for is a fair and honest reapportion and i also had to file suit in the supreme court where we could gain original jurisdiction and i said what i want you to do is to come up with this fair and honest reapportionment and we got University of Southern California to provide the, the demographers pro bono, <laughs> who did all of the legwork and the analysis. And when that was done, that was an exhibit to our lawsuit. <laughs> and the Supreme Court, I knew, would appoint special masters, which they did. And they barely changed a comma. And it was a fair and honest reapportionment, and it had the effect that Willie predicted. <laughs> and the result was that in 1994, we actually picked up a one-vote majority in the assembly. <laughs> in addition to uh, winning most of the constitutional offices, lesser constitutional offices. But in that one year, just to show you that it does make a difference, um, and we had one year, by the way, because we had three um, nominal Republicans in the Republican Assembly Caucus who, in fact, <laughs> and this, Willie was truly, you have to admire this kind of astuteness. Um, they were his guys. And so three of them got recalled. And that took a year. And then... Finally, when there was a one-vote majority of, when there were 41 real Republicans, Kurt Pringle, who is now the mayor of Anaheim, was elected the first Republican speaker since Ronald Reagan was governor. Yeah. Uh, the last one had been Bob Monaghan. In that year, I vetoed one-third 
the number of bills that I vetoed in each of the seven other years. In fact, I remember going to a cocktail party and saying to one of the Democratic senators, I said, gee, I'm sorry I had to veto your bill. And he said, it did me a favor. <laughs> he said, I put it in knowing you would veto it. He said, it was just my job to get it to your desk. It's <laughs> a great story. Um, I want to get to two issues. I mean, there are so many um, before we get to Q&A, and we're, we're short on time before we get to Q&A, but um, just to pick two, uh, both prisons and immigration, because um, mm -hmm. they're relevant now. And, um, you know, you, one of your issues you ran on was that, the, that our criminal justice system was too lenient. Um, you supported uh, three strikes, 25 years to life for repeat felons, and one strike, uh, 25 years to life upon the first conviction of aggravated rape or child molestation. Um, when people talk about what's driving spending in the budget now, they often talk about the increase in the prison population, um, uh, you know, uh, protected mm -hmm. by uh, that fast-growing, uh, that, that union with uh, fast-growing numbers of members, the, the prison guards, and... Um, sort of say, you know, that, that some of those sentencing changes are responsible. Uh, how, do you, how do you think about th that issue? I mean, you know, what were you thinking then, and, and how would you sort of address that well, situation what I was, now? What I was thinking then and think now is that the fundamental responsibility of government, discharged primarily at the local level, is to keep people safe in their homes, their places of work, and their places of recreation. And California had become a dangerous place. Um, the, the sellers of handguns were just making a killing. No pun intended. <laughs> no play on words intended. But they were selling a tremendous number of handguns when I came to office and guess who they were selling them to? Single women. <laughs> and they were selling, by the way, cheap guns, not very good ones, so-called Saturday night specials. One of the great myths was that Saturday night specials were causing a great deal of crime because gangbangers were using them. Hell, they wouldn't touch them. They didn't have to. They had good guns, 357 Magnums. I mean, the police used to laugh at that argument. Every department in the state said, are you kidding? Listen, they've got good guns. They don't, they're not the ones buying the Saturday night specials. And the reason is that if you are a working mother, a waitress, and your shift ends at 10 o'clock at night and you have to walk to a darkened garage or to a darkened bus stop, it's pretty scary. It had gotten very scary. And so they were buying handguns. They were buying mace um, sprays. Well, by the end of the first term, um, that had changed. And by the end of the third year of the second term, homicides in California had declined 40% by the end of the last year, 50%. And if that costs a certain amount of money, I think it's worth it. I also think that people who molest children and who engage in rape most never get well. 
And if you view it as a sickness, then we owe it to innocent victims that there not be more of them. And that was what was behind the legislation that said on the first conviction, it will be 25 years to life for aggravated rape or aggravated child molestation. Well, thank you. And I want to get one quick question, an important one before the Q&A, and that is, um, on 187, um, you, you, your position on that was clear then, and you've made it clear that, 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 uh, that you believe very strongly that that was the, the right thing to do then. Here's my question. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, illegal immigration, by various estimates, is, accounts for somewhere between five and seven billion dollars of, of state spending. Um, if there were something like 187 on the ballot again today, would you support it? Do we need something like that? Well, what we needed then and need now is for the federal government to accept its responsibility. It, uh, the federal government and the federal government alone has the responsibility for control of the borders. We have immigration laws that prescribe how people become naturalized citizens. And by the way, this country is what it is because of legal immigration. Three of my four grandparents were not born in this country. They immigrated. And I am grateful that they had the moxie to do so. And legal immigration has built this country. I mean, the, the energy, the drive, and people who, by the way, are not born to freedom don't take it for granted. And many who struggle to come to these shores could teach the native-born that lesson. But the problem that we faced in 94 and ever since is that people who quite understandably wish to come to a better life for themselves and their families have struggled and taken risks to come here illegally. You know, it's hard not to admire their courage and their spunk, and a lot of them are very good human beings. The problem in 1994 was that we learned that in the six years since the passage by Congress of the uh, legislation which mandated that illegal immigrants would be eligible, for prenatal care, for delivery, for postnatal care, for emergency care, the costs of, of uh, that care had increased in the six years 18-fold. And at the time, two-thirds of all the babies born in the public hospitals of Los Angeles County were born to parents acknowledged to be in the country illegally. Um, the the schooling of children who were the children of illegal immigrants, whether they'd been born here or simply been brought here, at that point amounted to about 1.7 to $2 billion. The, the total, if you looked at the cost of the alien felons, and by the way, on the subject of incarceration, 
1994 using 1992 figures. Um, One-fifth of the prison population of California were alien felons, people who'd entered the country illegally and then done something serious enough to amount to a felony conviction. I'm going to have to stop you there. I'm getting the note to, we need to move to Q&A, but, oh. but thank you for that. Um, thank you for that. And It's and now one in four. <laughs> now one in four. Wow. Questions? Uh, Todd Kerner. Governor Wilson, apropos to the last question that Joe proposed, do you think the immigration problem is more of faulty border enforcement or faulty employer enforcement? Both. Both. Let me uh, explain why. Um, in 1986, something called IRCA, the Immigration Reform and Control Act, was passed. Basically, what it amounted to was trading uh, amnesty for unworkable and unenforceable employer sanctions. I came into LAX while I was in the Senate and was greeted uh, at one, one time by the, the regional INS administrator. And he said, I want to show you something in my office. Walked into his office and on a table that was probably five by ten feet, there was a mountain of documents. Driver's licenses, green cards, social security cards, um, every kind of ID that was prescribed in the legislation as sufficing as identification. He said, help yourself, Senator. He said, if you can tell me which are real and which are counterfeit, you're a better man than I am. And there was no way that anyone could, certainly not, uh, this was not something that you could say to a small business owner running a shop of of 20 people or of five, did you check this man's identification? They couldn't do that. And in fact, until we've gotten fairly recently biometric measurements, that simply wasn't going to work. But the other thing is simply this. Um, if you don't have a physical barrier, then people who are being not well treated by their own government, people who have been kept, frankly, in grinding poverty, if they've got some moxie, are going to try to come here. I don't blame them. I blame, and in, in, in 94, when 187 was on the ballot, I blamed people in two places, both of them capital cities, Washington and Mexico City. And not a whole lot has changed since then. And for people who say physical barriers don't work, tell it to the Israelis. They've just about shut down suicide bombers who used to get through. Gentlemen, we have a question to your left. I am Dr. Sir, how are you, uh, Mr. Wilson? A uh, brief question after I have seen you for uh, so many years. Um, my question is, if you were in power today, and we have a very rough time now, what will you do about the economy? I know that you are very clear with that, and you always okay. were. 
Um, we mentioned earlier that there was a GAN spending limit. That was discarded. This, there is nominally a spending limit, but it is so high that we don't reach it even now. So it's useless. But what I think might be a very useful exercise is to go back to the last budget that was balanced without benefit of any dot-com bubble income. Because that, you could assume, was real. And if you then were to apply something like the GAN spending limit for permissible increases, you'd come to a number that was substantially less than was achieved by the <laughs> deficit spending in the last two administrations. And you cannot continue to do that without paying a terrible price. And the price is that you will revert to the kind of business environment that it took us about six years to change through a concerted effort. And that, I want to remind you of the obvious. When that happens, when your economy goes that sour, then you have people who are producers leaving the state. It's, that's what happened in the 90s. And it took us a long time to get well. And in the period that it took us a long time, the first three years, you had, I repeat, a smaller general fund year over year, three years in a row. And you don't get well by increasing taxes. That's the reason that I think we saw Proposition 1A go down to thundering defeat. It's because people understood that it was double-joined to the tax increases that had just been passed in the sales tax and the personal income tax rate, the highest sales tax now in the nation, and I think the second highest personal income tax rate. And those were sold to us they didn't sell, actually, but we were told that they were temporary, two-year taxes. Well, the ink was not dry on that legislation when the legislature had put this initiative on the ballot, 1A, that would have extended that sales tax, the highest in the nation's sales tax, to four years. And the highest or second highest personal income tax rate in the nation to three years. Now, I want to tell you, if you're the governor of California and you want to go out and market your state as a place attractive to investment and job creation, forget it because you have no credibility. And people say, call me when your temporary tax increases have expired. And um, they are skeptical and deservedly so. But so that, sir, is the... Uh, I, I want to jump in with a yeah. quick follow on that. Mm -hmm. the, that budget exercise you suggested, lots of people go back to the, the last yep. balanced budget year and, and, and grow from that. With, wouldn't you, if you did that, end up having to cut a lot of things, including things that, that you yourself championed? I mean, uh, you, know, you, know, you, you, were, you, you were an education reformer. You, you, you're, you're the one that gave us class size reduction in the state. 
um, in health, you, you, you emphasize prevention and you know, really the creator of something like healthy families, you know, mm -hmm. children's health insurance in this state. Wouldn't you have to go cut those things essentially if you did that budget exercise? I think there are other things that could be cut uh, well before that. You mentioned the prison guards. They got a huge increase in compensation uh, as soon as I left office. Um, if you look at what state employees are receiving as retirement and compare it with what's being paid in the private sector, you can understand some of the anger that was visited upon these six initiatives that were defeated. And I think if someone said to me, what's the explanation for the rejection of these initiatives? I mean, there's, there was less suspense about the outcome of this election than any within memory. <laughs> and they got, with the exception of one, they lost in every county, even San Francisco, even Marin. <laughs> that is uh, something. And it's because I think that the legislature has simply lost the trust of the people and the people are angry. And one of the things, they, they now are aware that, in fact, there is a gross disparity between private sector retirement and that uh, of, of public employees. The private sector retirees, by now most are on a defined contribution scheme. And that's not true of most public employees. Um, so there are a lot of things that could be cut. And, and I might add also that, yes, I was for preventive health care, and I still am. However, there is a limit to how much you expand eligibility. And when we left office, I think we were at 150% of poverty as the eligibility level for a lot of the health care. Now it's 300. Question. Another question down the middle. Hi, David Ochi, a lifetime Californian who has a business based in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, <laughs> my question for you, Governor, it revolves around the, the GOP in the state and how it would appear that the GOP is, is ineffective in voicing an, an opposing opinion in the assembly other than, than a, an occasional block when it's one down to one vote. Uh, what can the GOP do to try to bring back a two-party system to the state? Yes, I would applaud that question too. <laughs> um, well, I think that there is good news. If you, if you think that a, a uh, healthy competition between the parties is a good thing, and I think it is, I think it produces uh, I mean, the reason we have parties is to afford people a philosophical home in one or the other, and a two-party system, when it works well, provides that kind of competition that is intended to benefit the people, not the Pauls. And the reason that I was so keen on getting a fair and honest reapportionment, which by definition is one that the legislature does not do, is because you're guaranteed that if they do perform it, it, it frankly brings out the worst. They look to their own interests and they look to safe districts. And they, Republicans and the Democrats, engage in back scratching for that purpose. 
And there are Republicans who are perfectly happy to be forever in the minority. Hell, they don't have to govern. <laughs> they can just be sort of bomb throwers. That's not my idea of a useful exercise. Now, we have, with an initiative that was passed, uh, and I must say that <laughs> initially I was a bit suspicious because the organizations that brought it to the ballot tend to be liberal. Uh, AARP, the League of Women Voters, and Common Cause. I think it's fair that you would not describe any one of those as a bastion of conservative thought. But let's give credit where it's due. They put something on the ballot, which I thought was very complex and a little convoluted, which they did, I understand, to be honor bright and free from any kind of conflict of interest. And we're going to see how it works. I will tell you, it's got to be an improvement on the old system. Because the old system guaranteed that you would have polarized districts and the general election really didn't matter because it was all over in the primary. And what that led to was not reasonable debate and dialogue. It led in both parties to people who could shout the loudest and be the most extreme. And uh, it did not, in my judgment, make for good government. I think we had good government in the 90s, by and large, because we had something a whole lot nearer to balance. Now that's one part. The other thing is the best thing that you can possibly do is elect to the office of governor a charismatic candidate with sufficient art, uh, intelligence and appeal to articulate programs that will appeal to people in both parties. Ronald Reagan did that. And since you've given me the straight line, I predict that Meg Whitman will do that. Yeah. <laughs> Gentlemen, we have a question to your left here. Hi, my name is Pete Peterson. One of the uh, reform proposals that's been floated recently by uh, former Speaker Bob Hertzberg has been the devolving of power from Sacramento to counties and cities. Some see this as a Trojan horse against uh, Prop 13, and others see that it's really AB8 that needs to be reformed. I was wondering if you could speak to the, this movement to devolve power from Sacramento. Well, I think that what he is aiming at is an unintended consequence of Proposition 13. Proposition 13 did a number of good things. Um, first and foremost, it cured legislative default on the part of the state legislature. If they had done their job, then there would never have been a Proposition 13. If local governments had been honest about what they were doing, there might never have been Proposition 13. What they could have done and should have done is when they saw huge increases, escalation in assessed valuation, they should have compensated for that by lowering the rate. And when I used to hear people say, oh, we haven't raised the rate, they didn't have to raise the rate. The same rate against a huge base, an expanding base, 
obviously was bringing them much higher revenues and in the bargain taxing people who were retired out of homes on which they'd paid off the mortgage. So that, I was not surprised when it passed. But, and by and large, I think that the, uh, and, I, and I should say I'm not familiar with Bob's, with the, any of the specifics of what he is seeking to do with this devolution. Um, the idea appeals to me to a, a certain extent because I think one of the things that was an unintended consequence was that when the property tax was capped for local governments, the power of the purse shifted to Sacramento. And one of the unhappy consequences of that was that the state legislature arrogated to themselves the powers of a super school board. And they gave us an education code, which is a bad joke. I mean, you talk about micromanagement and prescribing things that should be left to an intelligent principal and an intelligent school board. And the other thing, frankly, is that it empowered the teachers' union like nothing else could have. And what it did was permit them to exercise enormous control at the local level and of the legislature. I'll give you one quick anecdote it has to do with uh, the heroism, the courage of a young liberal democratic assemblywoman who was the chairman of the Assembly Committee on Education. Her name was Carrie Mazzoni. She was from liberal Marin County. She had great courage and great integrity. She said to me after we'd had a lengthy discussion about the need for educational reform, she said, well, I don't agree with you about vouchers. But I do agree that you're right, that it is really essential, both for parents, for employers, for everybody, even for the teachers, that we have a return of statewide standardized testing. So we will know whether or not kids have gained the, the knowledge and the skills necessary for them to move on to the next grade. Well, that was probably the bitterest legislative fight, apart from the budget fights, of my eight years in Sacramento. And in fact, on the very last night of the 1997 session, you may be familiar with the old trick that it's when they announce the end of the session and they get near enough to midnight, they stop the clock or push it back to 8.30. <laughs> well, he did that this last night. It was a Friday night, and they went right through Friday night on into Saturday morning. And at 7 o'clock on Saturday morning, Carrie Mazzoni, who earlier had not been able to summon up enough votes to pass her legislation, which had already passed the state Senate, put on a call of the House. A call of the House is a rule that says if you've not yet voted, you can't leave the chamber. So she put on a call to the House at 7 o'clock. She lifted it. She put up her mic, made a brief summary speech. And when she stood up and put up her mic, about a dozen of her fellow Democrats 
stood up on the floor of the assembly and tried to shout her down, just shrieking at her. And to her great credit, she gave a brief, punchy speech and yelled, call the roll, and threw her mic down. It passed by one vote. Hers. Not, not hers alone, but seven or eight other Democrats joined her. But I think that that is what was certainly the, the ability through the kind of war chess that the teachers union was able to generate. And by the concentration of that power in the legislature, they passed all kinds of things that were aimed, very frankly, at defeating accountability. Why are they against merit pay? I know what the standard response is. The principal will play favorites. But, you know, what we have are people, and thank God we've got tens of thousands of skilled, dedicated professionals. But we've also got some people who are not equipped to render the kind of quality classroom instruction that used to be the hallmark of this state 35 and 40 years ago when it had the best public school system in the nation. It doesn't now. And that should change. There should be accountability. There should be recognition of merit. And <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't happen now. And that's why, by the way, they were so hell-bent to defeat that legislation, that testing legislation, because they were afraid that it would lead to identification of individual performance. My God, think of that. <laughs> well, th thank you. We're, we're out of time. Um, uh, I have one, one last question that some of your old political advisors wanted me to ask. I think the ones who are short on work pointed out that the, the, uh, the gubernatorial front-runner on the Democratic side, who looks like not a bad bet to, to, uh, to win the whole thing, is the Attorney General of the state and a former governor. And I believe you are the only person who has ever beaten him in a statewide election. Um, some think you have a, a magical ring that turns members of the Brown family, you know, politically weak. Um, so... If you uh, weren't prevented from doing so by term limits, uh, would you consider running uh, next year? Is the question. Hell yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm not sure I could count on my wife's vote, but. <laughs> Thank well, you. Thank you. You've been a wonderful audience. I've enjoyed it.